You know, testimonials are very, very powerful. Every time you are considering uh, making a decision and then someone that you really respect or you look up to for some reason um, vouches for that particular thing, all of a sudden, there, you know, there's this heightened sense of, okay, well, this, may, this, this is, might be really important because I really you know, value this person or I'm impressed by this person. They're vouching for it. Powerful, powerful thing, these testimonies. And for those of you involved in any sort of advertising or marketing, then you understand the power of testimony. That's why um, you know, you'll get, you'll get uh, you know, celebrities to uh, vouch for products, right? They'll say, hey, guys, do you want to untuck your shirt? And then the guys are like, no, not really. We don't. We don't really care about that. Well, Wayne Gretzky's untucking his shirt. Oh, well, maybe we should untuck our shirt. Or hey, you know, uh, uh, and we should get get some moisturizing cream. We we we're this company uh, called Avino, and we've got moisturizing cream. Oh, we don't really care. There's a million moisturizing creams. Um, well, Jennifer Aniston uses this moisturizing cream. Oh, well, Jennifer Aniston, her her skin is impeccable. Oh, maybe I'm very. We just it, it, the moment that a name gets dropped, the expectation is our ears are going to perk up. We've been working our way through uh, the book of Romans. Today our text is Romans chapter 4. And Paul's been saying some very scandalous things. He's been building a case for our need for justification. He's building a case for our need for righteousness. And he said some really strong things. He's anticipating some religious pushback. So Paul appeals to some pretty hefty testimonies. Paul uh, isn't just name dropping for the sake of name dropping, but he's actually appeal- appealing and saying, actually, I'm not the only one who, who has thought this. I'm not even the first one. Paul is actually going to look back through Israel's history and he's going to pull these two tremendous testimonies in Romans chapter 4 to catch the attention of the church by talking about Abraham and David. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses, then I'm going to move from 13 and read to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as what he's due. And to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Verse 13. And God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and to his offerings was based not on his obedience to the law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. Now, if God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is void. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. And that is why righteousness depends on faith, in order that the promises may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only those who adhere to the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. And he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the deadness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith, and as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. So here in chapter 4, Paul's zeroing in on righteousness. And righteousness means to be in right standing or to be in right relationship. And so we're going to ask three questions as we work through this text. The first one is, what does God require of us? The second one is, how does righteousness come to us? And the third question is, what does saving faith produce in us? So firstly, what is it that God requires from us? As you work through the first four chapters of Romans, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because this is what we've been looking at the last few weeks. What God requires is that we, we keep his wise and loving law perfectly personally, perpetually. That's what he requires. Which is why we need grace, because none of us love perfectly and none of us have ever loved perpetually. And that's the loving standard of God's law. And so when you get to verses 14 and 15, that's why Paul says the only way to not break the law is if there was no law to break. Uh, because the standard is this perfect love. Again, and I've said many times before, and maybe I'll say it for the benefit of those of you who may be new to the scriptures today, the reason why God requires perfect love is not because he's a cosmic perfectionist that's cracking a whip. It's because our God is a, is a trinity, which means before the world existed, he was enjoying love from all time. And therefore, the world and the cosmos, when he said, let us create mankind in our own image, everything that God created was created from love. If God was just a singular, you know, God, then everything would have been created from power. And then he would say, keep my law because I'm a God of tremendous power. And if you don't do what I say, I'll just destroy you with my tremendous power. But we, the cosmos was not spun into existence simply by God's tremendous power. It was fundamentally moved forward when God said, let us make in our image. And in, in the Hebrew throughout Genesis, what it's conveying is this dance of love as God is, when that's why throughout, throughout the Genesis account, when God is saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not, it's not just a checklist going through the factory saying none of these parts are defective. He, it's a celebration. It's good, it's good, it's good. And so, because the cosmos was spun forward from the great love of God, the perfect standard of God's law is love. That's why when Jesus boiled it down, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. If you love, you've kept the law. And of course, we're all sitting here, and none of us are able to do that. So this is what God re requires, and of course, in his grace, that's what he provided. When the Apostle Paul says, the only way to not break the law is for there to be no law to break, 
And the other argument that he's making in the first few chapters is that it doesn't matter what nationality you are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, because this is a big problem in the early church where there was some contention over, you know, well, is he the Lord over the Jews only or the Gentiles or what? And so what Paul is making case for is he's saying you need to understand he's the Lord of all the nations. Some, some of you have grown up with God's law, right? This is Rome, the letter to the Romans. So you've got these Greco-Roman Christians, but they're worshiping in a synagogue. Historians teach us there was five synagogues in Rome at the time. So you've got Messianic Jews who came to faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they grew up Jewish. They grew up with the law, and they're in church sitting next to people who didn't grow up with the law, and it's mixed. And so what Paul is saying is, some of you grew up knowing the law, some of you grew up without the law, but neither of us can keep the law. It's like this. I'll explain it like this for the kids who are in the service today. Right? Well, and the big kids too, because sometimes it's helpful for us. Here's what this means. Imagine two kids are walking home from school. And the, one little, and the one little kid looks and he sees a shortcut. So he just Ferris Bueller's it. And he's just jumping over fences and, he's, and, he, and he gets to his house. He trespassed. You know. He didn't know he trespassed, but he trespassed. The next little kid... She sees him do this, and she's like, considering it. And then she walks a couple blocks later, and she sees a sign that says, no trespassing. But then she remembers her friend, and she thought, that seemed like a good way to go. So she Ferris Bueller's it, and she runs through all the backyards, and she gets there. They both trespassed. One knew they did it, one didn't know they did it, but they're both guilty of it. That's Romans 4. Whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. We can't keep God's law. So, let, so let's move on. So what does God's law require? That's what it requires, this perfection. So of course, in his grace, he provided it for us. So the second thing is, how does this righteousness come then? Well, righteousness comes through a transfer of trust. And there's a lot of accounting language, maybe you noticed it as we were reading there, about accrediting and transferring. Reformed theologians call it, you know, the imputation of all of our sin going on in Christ and all of his righteousness come on us. How does the righteousness come to us? It comes through a trust transfer, okay? So by faith, God gives us the status of being righteous, right? And the reason he gives it to you is because it can't be earned by you. And he's anticipating the the pushback, and that's why he goes to the testimonials. Because he's anticipating some religious person is saying it's impossible that, I, that we can receive grace apart from keeping God's law. I grew up my whole life being told to keep God's law. And so he appeals to Abraham and David. Abraham's the father of the nation. David is the, is the, you know, the greatest king uh, of the nation. And so really what Paul's provoking by bringing up David and Abraham is he's going, what would your founding father and your beloved king say about this? I'm not the first one to introduce this idea of being justified by grace. So he goes right back to the Old Testament and he shows how this is true. And so, uh, uh, for example, in verse 3, he says, here's how Abraham got his righteousness. If you look at verse 3, he uses an accounting term, credited. And so in the Greek, it could also be translated, God chose to count Abraham's faith as a life of righteousness. He just counted it as it. In other words, Abraham was not righteous by his nature. He was declared righteous by grace. You and I are not righteous by nature. No Christian is righteous by nature. Have you met a Christian before? I mean, none of us are righteous by nature. We're declared righteous by grace. And so, Jesus Christ being righteous by nature, it is because, of, it is because Christ wasn't righteous by nature that his righteousness is accredited to us by grace. And so when you get to verses 4 and 5, the text 
goes on to say that he doesn't justify us because we work. He justifies us because we believe that God, God justifies the unjust. And I want you to notice that, he again, he, he uses some contrasting language of a wage and a gift. And he goes on to contrast these two ideas. And either you're standing before God, united to Christ, in a gift of righteousness that God gives you, or you're standing before God, presenting your good works like an invoice, demanding wages now. And you're going to invoice God with your good works, expecting payment, because God owes you. Those are the two options. Your righteousness is either a gift that God gives, or it's a wage you think you can earn. And of course, his argument is that we can't earn it. We know that. Right? And so God is not in debt to any of us because we can't earn righteousness like a wage. Therefore, he does give it like a, like a gift. And then when you look at the text, he's provoking how, just how scandalous this, this is by saying God doesn't call us righteous after we look righteous. And he doesn't call us righteous after we act righteous. He actually calls us righteous while we're wicked. Which is unbelievable. And he knows it's unbelievable. And that's why he goes back to Abraham to go, actually, guys. And that's why, you know, the verses that I, I, I moved over them because uh, he, was, we, he summarizes them uh, later. But that's why he's going on and saying, when was, when was Abraham considered righteous? Before or after circumcision? And he goes through that whole conversation around circumcision. And the point being, it wasn't after he did anything. It was before. And because Abraham was declared righteous before his circumcision, he goes, come on in, Greeks and Romans. Because that means Abraham's faith made him righteous before he had the sign of Israel. Therefore, you can be righteous too, the same way Abraham was, even though you grew up and you never had the sign of Israel. You see this? So he's putting this all together and he's saying, righteousness can only come one way. It can only come as a gift. And so in verses 7 and 8, he goes to the second testimonial and he brings up David. And he quotes David in Psalm 32 by saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So you see there's a lot of counting going on here. And he says right here, the Lord will not count his sin. But here's the thing, God is counting sins. He's counting all your sins. He's counting all my sins. He's counted all the sins since the beginning of human history. The question is, where are those sins being counted? And the good news of the gospel is, and here in Psalm 32 and all of Romans, because of Jesus, all the sins that God is counting, because he's just, aren't being counted against you. They are being counted against, and they have been counted against his son. So God is a just judge. This is a strong theme in Romans, that God is just in justifying sinners, because he doesn't just wink at our sin and cook the books. He came in Christ and he paid the price for our sin, and he reconciled the books. And so, in this, Paul continues. There's a transfer of trust. This transfer of trust has to be away from our ability and into Christ's sufficiency, so, which leads us to the final thing, a third thing. Okay, so if what God requires is perfection, of course, by his grace, he provided it. If the way that righteousness comes is it must be a gift, and that gift of righteousness comes by saving faith. The third thing we want to ask is, what does this saving faith produce? What does it produce in your life? What does it look like on the ground? What is Paul kind of getting at here? What, what, so he uses Abraham as a bit of a kind of a case study for this. So well, what, it, what it produces, what our saving faith produces, many things, but here in, in, in chapter 4, we'll, we'll zone in on a few of them. It produces honesty about our sin, and it produces conviction about what God says. 
So in, this, in the second half of the chapter that we read there, as he's using Abraham as this case study, if you look at verse 19, it says that, you know, Abraham was old, he was beyond childbearing age, his wife Sarah's womb was dead. And the whole point of verse 19 there, of talking about Abraham's age and the deadness of Sarah's womb, is to show the direction that the trust transfer has to go, because saving faith produces humility, and it produces honesty about our flaws and our failings. Because trusting in God ends with the trust of yourself. Abraham eventually had to come to the end of the trust of himself. And, we, and if you know the story of Abraham, you know that he, there were times where he took that trust transfer back, just like you and I do. He, Abraham wasn't flawless in his trust of God. He had to come to the end of the trust of himself in order to actually do the trust transfer and come to, and, and come to trust God. Right? Both David and Abraham, they, they did incredible things, right, by God's grace, but they're both failures in their own rights. Right? So David was a failure in that he was an adulterer and he was a murderer, right? He looked on a woman. He should have been actually out to battle, but he wasn't. He was, stayed home and he's standing on the roof and he's watching her bathe. And then after that, he commits adultery. It's a nightmare. And then after that, she gets pregnant and he's got to cover up the pregnancy. So then he's got to cover up the pregnancy. So he brings the guy back from battle. And he's like, hey, go sleep with your wife because then if you sleep with her, you'll think it's your kid. But then he's like, no, far be it from me to sleep with my wife and my king. And now we're at battle. So he sleeps at David's door like this, you know, loyal, you know, dog. You know, he's just loyal to the king. And so he's like, what am I going to do? She's pregnant with my kid, but she won't sleep with his wife. So he thinks it's her kid. Oh, I know what I'll do. He puts him in the front of the line, kills Uriah. Uriah's dead. The Game of Thrones just has nothing at all on the Old Testament. Okay? Just has nothing on it. And so David understands, which is why he wrote, blessed is the one whose sins are not counted against them, that there's only one way righteousness is coming. And, and, and David did amazing and glorious things by God's grace, and yet he was still in his own right of failure. And Abraham was the same, which is why Paul brings him up here. Abraham, they call him the father of faith, and he, and he was because, he, again, Abraham did tremendous things by the grace and the glory of God, but he was also a failure. There were two different separate occasions in Abraham's life where he felt his life was threatened, and the, and, and, uh, the, 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 the Pharaoh was looking at his wife like, oh, wow, hey, she's uh, pretty attractive. Uh, could I possibly get her... Could you DM me her, e- her uh, contact information? And Abraham's like, yeah, actually I can because she's my sister. Because he's trying to save his skin. And you would think that'd be the only time a person would do that. But if you study Israel's history, you find that 25 years later after that, Dave, Abraham did it again. And then, there, of course, there's the, and then, of course, there's the, the part where... Uh, of the account that this is specifically referring to where he had to eventually do a trust transfer and stop trusting himself and start trusting God because when he realized he was beyond you know childbearing age and Abraham's womb was was dead because she was around 90 years old and then Sarah's like well this isn't going to work so you should probably just sleep with my maidservant Hagar and you know you read the text and there's like no hesitation Abraham's not like far be it from me and I said okay all right then. And the reason I bring all of this up is because they both understood their righteousness was only come, coming one way, the scandalous grace of God. You and I have to understand the same. We do not need to manufacture a facade of self-righteousness because Christ is our righteousness. 
right? What does saving faith produce? Well, it produces honesty and conviction over our sin. Firstly, we don't need to hide our sin from God, and we don't need to hide our sin from each other when we sin against each other, and we will. We don't need to hide it. We can confess it. The gospel liberates us to confess. The gospel liberates us to confession. Because, precisely because our, 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 our righteousness is not, is not hinging on our flawed attempts at goodness. Our righteousness is not hinging on how good we appear to the other people in this church community and outside in the greater community. Our righteousness is not hinging on that. The gospel liberates us to confess our sin and confess our failure because it's firmly rooted not in our own imperfect attempts but in Christ's perfection. And so saving faith therefore compels you to relate to God's word like it's non-negotiable and not optional. See, that's, what, that's, what, that's where this goes with Abraham and with David. They end up relating to God's word like, you know what, this, his, his righteousness is beyond mine. His grace is unfathomable. I've got to take him at his word. I've got to, therefore, as a, as a child of this scandalous grace, treat his word like it's non-negotiable and not like it's optional. And, you know, when we struggle to believe God's word, we do exactly what Abraham did. We take matters into our own hands, right? We, re- we reverse the trust transfer, and we try and make a go of it ourselves. We say, sorry, God, you had a chance. I gave you a chance to heal my soul and give me peace, but I don't feel peace in my soul, so I'm going to turn to this now. I'm sorry, God, I gave you a chance to heal me of the pain of the hurt of my past, to heal my heart, my mind, but you know, I still grapple with these things, so we're done now. I'm done trusting you. I'm now going to turn and trust this over here. I mean, I'm going to functionally believe in your existence. I mean, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to theologically believe in your existence, but I'm going to functionally trust in this small little thing over here. I'm sorry, God, I've given you a chance to bless my life with this church community that you say is supposed to be a blessing to me, but I'm not sure that they're a blessing to me. So I'm done taking you at your word and believing this could possibly be a blessing. We're done with that. I'm going to actually go and try and find fulfillment in my life and in my heart and my soul outside the means that you gave. Right? This is what we all do. We're like Abraham. We find a Hagar. We're like, I'm not sure this is working. We're going to try something else. And so the, what saving faith produces in you and I is the trust that we can take God at his word. And the more we consciously reflect on the greatness of God, the more his peace will dissipate our worry and we'll become more deeply rooted in trusting God. And you find that as you look through verses 20 and 21, or 18 through 21, as Abraham is strengthened in his faith. And I have really good news for you, church. You know, though Abraham didn't always live out his faith, and though his obedience floundered and his trust was fluctuating, by God's grace, his faith was never extinguished. And by God's grace, Abraham hung on to God's promise in the midst of all his flaws, in the midst of all of his failings. And even though you do not walk out your obedience without floundering, and even though your trust fluctuates, by God's grace, your faith will not be extinguished. That by God's grace, you will cling to the goodness of God's promises for you through even your own flaws and your failings. 
This is the promise of saving faith. This is what you and I place our trust in. When you read verses 18 through 20, it says that Abraham was strengthened in his faith. And that strengthening didn't happen because he was a spiritual, spiritual giant, giant without failure. It actually happened through his failure, right? And so it, the text says he hoped against hope, right? And in English, hope is like, fingers crossed, baby. I hope this works. That's how we use the word in English. But in, in uh, the ancient world, uh, in particular, when uh, they would use words like this, like to hope, it meant, uh, theologically speaking, it meant the hope was this confident cert- sense of certainty. So what it means is he looked at his dead body and he looked at his wife's dead body and there was a physical certainty. But what Abraham did was he's like, well, I need to trust in God's certainty beyond the apparent certainty of my life. And so what saving faith produces in you and I as we go through trials and tragedies and, and, and situations and circumstances is we're like, you know what? I need to continually trust in God's certainty that he is going to take me through. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but he will take me through this immediate, temporal, natural, apparent certainty to just continually turn and fall on God and not fall on anything smaller than God, turning to our little Hagars, expecting that we are going to somehow do what God himself is not able to do. And so this is the uh, encouragement we get from Abraham and how, what it means that he was strengthened by God. It was one of the modern dilemmas for us as Christians, I think, today, is we're so fixated on wanting to know what God is doing, on wanting to know what God is doing next, where we find ourselves in unfavorable circumstance. We immediately get very pragmatic about how God might get us out of that circumstance. We're very, we're a pragmatic culture, and so we're very fixated on thinking about God in these terms. But we can breathe because he is the Lord over the circumstance. He's not necessarily going to give us the inside scoop on how he's going to get us through all circumstance. And I once heard us, our call to trust in God's greatness, even in our small size. I once heard somebody describe it this way. It's like the will of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God, the plan of God. It's like a tapestry. And if you've ever taken a, a cross stitch, a very ornate uh, cross stitch, and ever looked at the back of a cross stitch, the back of it is just intelligible, unintelligible. You have no idea what you're looking at. You have no clue what you're looking at. But when you flip it around and look on the other side, the image is very clear. And from God's vantage point, everything that he is doing and has always done throughout all of human history is going to culminate together in a way that our little minds can't conceive. But right here and now, down on planet Earth, where there's just cords and strings everywhere, we can't make sense of what's going on. But what we get encouraged by through Abraham's faith is that he was strengthened, not because he was a giant without failures and flaws, but that by God's grace, he was made strong through his failures and flaws, just as you and I, just as you and I uh, uh, will be, as we trust in him. And so growing strong in our faith doesn't result in a life of nonstop comfort. Growing strong in our faith is actually a life of nonstop clinging. And I think what I want more often is that if I will rest in God's grace and rest in God's righteousness and, and rest in the goodness of the gospel, that what I'm hoping the strengthening of my faith is going to look like is this constant life of 
comfort, when in reality, what I'm being called into is a constant life of clinging. And when you think about the implications of this for us as a church, as we go to do our mission in the city, is that as we recognize really the Christian life as a constant life of clinging and of trusting, what that does is that removes our swaggering and it removes the sniveling. We don't leave church with our knuckles dragging on the ground saying, woe is me, I'm a worm, I'm a zit on the face of humanity, and if it wasn't for God's grace, I'm just garbage. That we do, no, there's no sniveling in the gospel. Right? But at the same time, there's no swaggering in the gospel, which is the point of the first four chapters of Romans. And when you think about how that enables us to face uh, our friends at school and how we relate to those at, uh, uh, at work, and those in, in our places of vocation or recreation or wherever we are, with a, a great sense of confident humility that we often talk about. Because we recognize that it's because of God's grace that, we're, that our lives are firmly in his hands, and we can trust him in such a way and be very bold in our witness to that to give a defense for the hope that we're resting in. Because we are in this life of non-stop clinging. So God requires this perfect righteousness, and therefore he provided it. And what saving faith is producing is... The humility and honesty about our sin, but a confidence to take God at his word and to relate to his word that way. Like it's a non-negotiable in our life. Because therein is the means of grace of how he gets that peace to your soul, of how he gets that rest to your soul. And you can stand before God in righteousness because by grace and faith you're united to Christ who is your righteousness. And so from that freedom, church, may we go from this place and may we live to the glory of the one who saved us. Let's pray.